Well, today we're going to do something we've never done before, and uh, who knows whether we'll ever do it again. Um, went pretty well the first hour, uh, but uh, I think it'll get even better, hopefully this hour. We'll see. It's called Ask Anything. What we did is we invited you to text in questions, things that you wondered about, and uh, we're going to try to answer a number of those today. Uh, we got over 60 questions, like of the serious kind, and uh, so, so thanks for sending those in, and we've kind of... You know, I've tried to group them into some categories, and we're going to just kind of go through them. It's a pretty wide spectrum. We're going to talk about some issues related to faith, related to family, related to cultural issues, related to, you know, theological debates. Uh, maybe we'll get to some other stuff that we didn't get to last hour. Who knows? We'll see. It's going to be a lot of fun. Um, so I want to get to it. But before we do, I just want to give a couple quick things for you to remember, okay? So uh, first, the reason I wanted you to read 1 Corinthians 15 with me is just to remember what is most important. Right? All Scripture is equally inspired by God, but even within the Scripture here, we're told that this particular part of, of the Bible is, is even more important because it contains the core message of Christianity. Right? That's why Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, he was buried, he was raised, people saw him. That's the gospel message. And that is most important. So we're going to talk about a lot of different things today that aren't that. They're related to that. They're influenced by that, but they're not that. Some things we're going to talk about are really close to the heart of this, right? So there's going to be a number of questions we look at here today, and even somewhere you're going to go, why does that even matter? And I think this is just a good principle. The closer a particular issue is to the heart of the gospel, the more it matters. If it's not particularly close to the heart of the gospel, it's less crucial for you to decide what you think on that. But that's, that's just something to remember. The gospel's most important. A number of the things that we'll look at today aren't, aren't that. Okay? Second thing is that we grow through tension. And there will be lots of tension today. Right? There will be questions that make you uncomfortable. There might be answers that make you uncomfortable. <coughs> Embrace that. You know that that's how you grow. You don't grow through ease and comfort. You grow through tension. Third thing to remember is, um, please consider this the beginning of the conversation, not the end. Okay? I have a limited amount of time to talk about, in some cases, pretty complex things that whole books are written about. And uh, you know, we can talk about like for months and months. And so um, just let this begin the conversation, not end it. If you hear something today that bugs you or rubs you the wrong way, don't storm out and go, well, that's it. And just let it begin the conversation. I'll be available in the front left. A few of our other pastors will be up there as well. We would, after the service, in the front left, we'll be up there. We would like to hear any questions, any pushback, any follow-up, whatever. We would invite that, okay? Now, the request I have comes really out of that is to please give me grace today, all right? I'm going to try to answer a bunch of questions. Some of them I'm going to go fast, and I just I need some grace. Just, just understand, I'm not saying everything that could be said. Uh, in some ways, even maybe everything that should be said, I'm, I'm doing my best. So cut me some slack, all right? Thank you in advance for that. All right? So I've kind of grouped these questions by different categories. And the first category we need to look at is uh, the category that I would call life's big questions. Life's big questions. These are the things that everybody is wrestling with, okay? Here's the first one. in and out or Chick-fil-A, which is better? That's an actual question that really came in. Um, I think that depends on whether you're from the South or whether you're from California. Uh, and, and it definitely depends on whether it's Sunday. Okay? So today, 
in and out is way better than Chick-fil-A, all right? Um, so just keep that in mind. And you'll, I know you're just already going like, man, Chick-fil-A sounds good. <laughs> Another of life's big questions, uh, how is there such thing as prune juice? Shouldn't it be plum juice? After all, there's no raisin juice. I got that one on that thing for a bit. That makes sense. You know what Deuteronomy 29, 29 says? The secret things belong to the Lord. I got a lot more ridiculous questions like that uh, that were funny. Some of them made me laugh. Some of them made me go, what's wrong with you people? <laughs> but, uh, but that's what we have. So on to some more serious ones. And this first one, uh, this first category I want to think through is a category I would call faith and doubt. Questions related to faith and doubt. A lot of questions in that category that kind of came in. Interestingly, of the 60 plus questions we got, very few overlapped. A few did. And I'm going to really try to answer those. Um, but this is one that there was definitely a, a lot of questions about. All right, so here's the first question. How do I trust God with my daily life? I struggle to pray because I don't believe he will hear my prayers. How do I know which nursing home my dad is supposed to go in? How do I know which class I'm supposed to take? What is the work that is involved in being a Christian? I thought being a Christian would just happen to me, but I'm learning I got it all wrong. I'm learning there is work involved. That's a great question. And uh, I would love to be able to sit down with whoever's asking this question and actually hear what's going on in your life and why you're feeling these tensions you're feeling and be able to speak into that. I obviously can't do that, so I'll try my best. There are a lot of questions here. I think the core one is at the beginning. How do I trust God with my daily life? That's the core question. And you really can grow in trust with God. And I thought that that was the core question. I also think the part that follows it is really the key issue that's at the heart of this, which is, I don't believe he will hear my prayers. If you don't believe God will hear your prayers, then you're not convinced that God's for you. And it's very, very difficult to make all these other decisions about where to put that, and what class to take, and how to handle your situations and scenarios. And so that's the core issue. How do I trust God? How do I grow in my trust in God? Well, the scripture gives us a handle on this. Romans 10, 17 says that faith, that's the biblical word for trust, faith comes through hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. So there's some things that need to be heard. There's some things that need to not just be heard with our ears, but heard with our hearts. Right? We know as we follow Jesus, there are a lot of people that hear him that don't hear him. Right? So you've got to hear some things in order for your faith in Christ to grow. The first thing you need to hear is the gospel. I think that's what Paul means here when he says, hearing through the word of Christ. The word, the message of Christ is the gospel. The good news that while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. The good news that Christ died for your sins. He was buried. He was raised. People saw him. And that because of that, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You've been given the Spirit of God by which your heart cries out, Abba, Father. There's no condemnation for you. There's no nothing that can separate you from God. Nothing that can get in the way of that relationship. Until you embrace the gospel at a heart level. It's going to be very hard to trust the that God is for you. Yet the scripture declares that Jesus has proven it. He's for you. Now, now here's how most of us are, right? Most of us are like, you, you ever have a time when you, uh, you you put money in a vending machine and the money goes in, but the chips or the crackers or the candy bar or the soda doesn't come out, right? And it's like kind of in limbo there. And you're not sure the money like dropped, right? And you've got to kind of bang on it to make the money drop. So that the thing comes out. Well, it's the same in our Christian life. Oftentimes, the gospel comes in and we go, yeah, it's in there. 
but, but we're not able to live out of it. We're not able to pull from its resources and bear fruit that goes, oh, I can trust God. And so we have to keep hearing it. We have to pound the gospel, as it were, into our lives until the coins drop. So you need to hear that. You also, it would help a lot to just read the scriptures and get familiar with God's character, what God's like, how the Bible describes him. The more you understand that, the more you realize, okay, God is the same yesterday, today, forever. He was for his people then. He's for me now. And the more that those things become real, the more you'll be able to trust them. And the more you're able to trust them, the more the decisions will be less paralyzing. The more freedom you'll experience, the more your mind will not be conformed to the pattern of the world, but transformed by the renewing of your mind, and then you'll be able to better discern what God's will is. So I know that's a short answer to a deep and complex question. Um, if I could meet you, I'd want to talk more, but that's what I got. All right? Next question relates more to doubt. This is a common question. If faith is a gift from God and we cannot create faith on our own, why is doubt Sin. I think it's a good question. A lot of people uh, feel like they feel bad for doubting. They feel ashamed for doubting. They feel ashamed for having questions. And I guess the thing that I would want to clarify here is that there's a way to doubt that I don't think actually is sin. And there's a way to doubt that is. So the way to doubt that isn't sin is a way to go, I'm a finite creature. There's a ton I don't understand and have lots of questions about. And times when I just don't feel real certain about it. I think you can have that kind of doubt and yet still have a trusting relationship with God where you're humble and you're looking to Him and you're dependent on Him even though you might be going, God, I don't fully understand how the end times works. God, I don't fully understand all these things and how they could philosophically make sense. And I got a lot of questions and I have a lot of concerns and I, and I, I, I trust you but I just, there's a lot I'm trying to figure out. I think that's okay. And I actually think the more honest you can be about having those things as you work through them, the more it actually grows your faith. The more it kind of refines you and you come out on the other end a little bit stronger. Now the kind of doubt that is sin is the kind of doubt that is suspicious of God's heart. The kind of doubt that is unbelieving and distrustful. That sort of says, well God, I don't like how you do it that way. And if I were you, I would run the world differently. And I wouldn't have let that happen. And why do you act like that, God? That kind of attitude, even if you never get that loud about it, that kind of attitude is sin. That kind of attitude is rebellion. That kind of attitude is at the core of our sinful condition. Right? Adam and Eve distrusted God's heart. They said, he's holding out on us. He's not giving us what we really need. And they distrust them. So that kind of doubt is a sin. But the other kind of doubt, it's okay. Wrestle through it. Own it. And see what God does through it. All right, next question. This is a quick one. There were a lot of good questions related to church and philosophy ministry, why we do certain things the way we do. A lot that I'd love to answer, but just for the sake of getting to some other, I think, more um, questions that more people might be asking, I want to do that. But here's one that just to... To let you know. How come we don't go through books of the Old Testament like we do the New Testament? That's a good question. Um, and we do actually go through uh, books of the Old Testament. I made a list of things that we've talked through here at Redemption Gateway. We've talked through uh, most of Genesis. We've talked through Jonah, Malachi, Ruth, Daniel, Habakkuk. It just so happens that we've, the last two things we've taught have been Romans and Mark. And that took like three years between the two of them. And so next year we will for sure be teaching through an Old Testament book or maybe two. Um, and the lead pastors of all our congregations are actually talking through what that should be next year. So stay tuned. It should be fun. All right. Next question relates to family. Family. 
This is a really good question. What do we mean when we say men should be the spiritual leader in the home? What does that look like? Now, I don't know why we is in quotation marks, but we do say at this church that men should be the spiritual leader in the home. That seems to be what the Bible indicates uh, for a lot of different reasons. What does that look like? Now, I think there's a lot of confusion about this. I think Christian men, many of them, live with a constant sense of falling short, a constant nagging sense of guilt, some of which may be valid, and some of which I think is created by lots of false expectations, either that they have for themselves or that the wife or kids or someone else has for them, or kind of Christian subculture has. And so I think this is a good question to try to clarify. Here's how I think of what it means to be a spiritual leader in my home. And therefore, that's what I tell other guys. The husband, the father, the man is the spiritual leader in the home in that he is the spiritual thermostat for the home. Right? A thermometer reads the temperature. A thermostat sets the temperature. And the husband sets the tone for how the family is going to think about and feel about spiritual things. Now, it doesn't mean that everyone else doesn't have choices involved in that, but the tone is set, the culture is set, the temperature is set by the man. It's just that way. Uh, advertisers understand this, by the way. That's why the most coveted demographic is men 18 to 35. Because companies know if we can get guys at their most influential stage, this is going to be significant. We get everybody else too. And so men set the tone whether they mean to or not, whether they intend to or not, but it's just absolutely clear that they do. Folks on the family did a study a few years back where um, they basically said, okay, if, a, if in a family a child comes to Christ before anyone else, how likely is the rest of the family to come to Christ? What they found is if a child comes to Christ first, about 3.5% chance that the rest of the family comes to if mom comes to Christ first, that goes up to 17%. That's significant. If dad comes to Christ first, you know what it goes to? 93%. Now, where I find a lot of the guilt happens is people going, well, do we pray together? Do we have a Bible study together? Do we do this devotional thing together? If you can do that and you want to do that, great. But I also find a number of guys who go, you know what? I'll just do my devotional thing during this one time, and then I'll kind of set God on the shelf the rest of the time. And do you know what the spiritual temperature is in a home like that? Even though you're checking the I'm a spiritual leader box, it's pretty cold. Your wife knows the difference. Your kids know the difference. And so what they need is a dad who loves Jesus, who creates an environment where there is love, and there is truth, and there is wisdom, and there is grace. A dad who is eager to you know, accept responsibility for his sin and ask forgiveness. A, a, a dad that's going hard after God. What's that look like? It means going hard after God. That's what our whole church is trying to help you do, man. But that's a good question. Doesn't have to be formal, but it really does matter. All right. Doing pretty good on time. All right. Number seven. No, that's not number seven because I skipped something. All right. Here's the, we're going to cultural issues. Cultural issues. This will be fun. Um, great question here. My question is regarding sharing our faith in the workplace. The culture is changing so fast, and the world is doing its very best to leave God out. How do we respond in a loving and Christ-like manner to such things as you can no longer even say Merry Christmas, but rather Happy Holidays? Uh, how do we share our faith at work without getting in trouble? When I read that question, I thought two things. One, I thought, 
thank you, Lord, that I had the opportunity to be in the marketplace before I was a pastor. So I, I know this thing firsthand. I know what this feels like. I know how to think about it. Not that I always did it well, but at least I've lived in that environment. <laughs> Second, I thought, you know what helps this whole thing be a lot better? Is when you are a great employee. When you are indispensable. When you are a linchpin. When you are a we couldn't do what we do the way we do it without that person kind of person. How do you become that? You work really hard. You get really um, up to speed on what's going on in your industry. You uh, treat people with respect and honor. You serve others. You love others. What you do is basically you live as a profoundly Christ-shaped person in your workplace. That's what you do. And when that happens, a lot of the, hey, you can't do that, hey, you can't go there, you get a lot more grace. You get a lot more slack because you're indispensable. Now, if you live that way, the Bible tells us there's going to be two things that happen. Uh, one thing that's going to happen if you live that way is that some people are going to kind of come against you. And despite the fact that you're doing the right thing and you're walking with integrity, some people are still going to say, hey, you know, you can't do that here. Other people, though, are going to be intrigued. Other people are going to ask questions and go, tell me more. Let me show you where this is. This is in 1 Peter 3. In the book of 1 Peter, Peter's writing to a group of people who are kind of like exiles in a foreign country uh, where, where the people, you know, they're in a culture that's not super responsive to God. And here's what he says in 1 Peter 3. He says, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Um, interesting assumption there. Right before this, he basically said, if you're a moron and you get mistreated for it, that's your problem. Like if you're if you're a you know jerk about evil stuff and people mistreat you, that's on you. But here he says, if you're zealous for what's good, if you are a profoundly Christian influence in your place, he said most of the time what what harm's going to come? People are going to be thankful. People are going to go, wow, there's nobody that works as hard as you. There's nobody that cares like you do. Wow, that's incredible. But Peter says, verse fourteen. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. He says there will be times when because of your profoundly Christian beliefs and the way those get expressed, people will come against you and you will suffer persecution. But he says, interestingly, congratulations. You're blessed. If that happens, that you are so living a distinctive Christian life that people come against you, you're blessed. Because blessed are the persecuted because Jesus was persecuted too. He says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. So that was the first thing that could happen, right? People might come against you. But the next thing is people might be intrigued. Verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Peter says, here's what happens. If you live a profoundly Christian life in the marketplace, some people will come against you, and some people will go... Tell me more. I, I, I see that you're different. I see that you don't seem to be as sort of blowing in the wind as everyone else. You seem to have more conviction. You seem to have more strength. You seem to have more love. Where does that come from? Where, what's this hope in you about? And so the question for this person, the question for all of us is, when was the last time someone asked that question? It's one thing to go, I'm ready to give an answer. Okay. Is anyone asking? 
And here's what I'll tell you. Um, getting really worked up about stuff like Merry Christmas versus Happy Holidays isn't going to help. People aren't going to go, no, really, tell me why it should be Merry Christmas. That's not going to do it. What's going to do it is that you are so committed as a Christian, and it's obvious, that they're going to ask you about that. It's not easy. It's really difficult, and some industries are harder than others. That's my best shot. All right? Next question. Uh, this question uh, relates to, well, let's read it. I am unsure about how to approach people who profess to be Christians but say the Bible never states that homosexuality is a sin. Or those who are openly gay and claim to be Christian. Often I hear that what the Bible says was for people back then and doesn't culturally apply to us. I know it comes down to an incorrect view of Scripture, but how do I take a stand in a loving way when so many distort the Word of God I value so much? Now, I'll try to be brief here because we've actually done, I did two messages on Romans 1, uh, theology of homosexuality and kind of a, a cultural approach to it that I did that's on our website a couple years ago. Uh, Matthew preached on this after the Supreme Court decision this summer. So we've got three sermons that you could kind of tackle some of this stuff. Um, but I think there's a nuance to this that is really worth uh, talking about. Um, if you were to look at all the passages, there's only six passages that explicitly talk about homosexuality in the Bible. They're all negative. Uh, they talk about it as an abomination, as something unnatural, as something um, that prevents you from entering the kingdom of God, and a number of other things. You, a plain reading, if you just looked up the passages and read them, you'd go, ooh. This is listing homosexuality as a sin. So, if you read those things, you end up having three options. Option one, you read it and you go, homosexuality is a sin. Seems like that's the plain reading scripture. All right? Now, there's two other ways to read, or to, to do with that. If you are committed to the idea that you do not want to embrace that homosexuality is a sin, usually because you have some biases against that idea, you, you do one of two things. The, the next thing you might do is you would say, well, I'm going to do some interpretive gymnastics to make this sound different than it does. Um, I, I don't have time to get into a lot of examples of what those might be, but uh, Matthew Vines has a book. It had a very popular video. Millions of people have watched it on YouTube. His book, God and the Gay Christian, does this exact thing. He reinterprets all these passages to say, look, they're really, homosexuality is really okay. So that's one option. You can just sort of interpret it differently in a way that's inconsistent with all of history. Um, or the third option that you have is you can say, the Bible's old-fashioned, the Bible's regressive. How can we trust the 2,000-year-old book anyway? Right? You just dismiss the Bible. So the reason I want to address this doesn't really have to do with homosexuality as much as it has to do with that last, that last objection. Because there's a lot of things where people go, well, because of blank, I can't embrace Christianity because, you know, the Bible's old-fashioned. So whatever it is, whether it's homosexuality or roles of men and women or some other thing, people do that. And so I would ask uh, probably two questions to somebody. I, I'd say, okay, uh, first, are there any passages of Scripture that are culturally offensive to you, but you still believe that they're true? Do you hear what I'm asking? So ask someone, is there any part of scripture that offends you? You don't like it, but you go, I still believe it's true. Or are you more like Thomas Jefferson, right? Thomas Jefferson literally got out scissors and made himself a Bible where he cut out all the things he didn't like 
and he sewed together the things he liked. And so what he ended up with was a Bible that did not offend him in any way. Okay? And so you could ask someone, what, what something, well, give me an example of something that you really disagree with, but you think it's true stuff. Chances are they're going to go, well, I don't, I, you know, I don't have anything like that. And at which point I think that you would begin to ask, well, how then would your God contradict you? Do you have a God that can contradict you? Or do you have a God that always agrees with everything you agree with? Um, Tim Keller's a pastor and author from New York. He talks about this, the, the idea of a Stepford God. Have you ever seen the Stepford Wives movies? Right, the Stepford Wives were the ones where they were always, these wives were always talking back to their husbands and the guys didn't like it and kind of this weird country club setting. And so they basically have their wives' brains taken out and replaced with robots that only say, yes, dear, okay, dear, whatever you want, dear. Right? And what Keller says is, listen, if you have a God that can't contradict you, if you have a God that always says to you, yes, dear, okay, dear, whatever you want, dear, then you don't actually have a real God. You don't have a God worth worshiping. What you have is a God made in your own mind's image. Not a real God. So I think that's maybe a helpful way to think about it. As it relates to homosexuality, here's a big deal for us as Christians, okay? We need to stop trying to convince people that homosexuality is a sin. And instead, try to win people to the idea that Jesus rose from the dead. Okay? Because if Jesus rose from the dead, and someone can embrace that, then they can begin to go, wow, then if Jesus rose from the dead, he really is God, he really is who he says he was, and that cascade effect begins to sort out all the other things. We get so distracted by this combustible issue, and we forget the main thing. So, something we can see. All right, last uh, cultural issue question. How do we know that the Bible clearly says that life begins at conception? Is this a closed-handed or open-handed issue? In other words, how important is this question? Um, this is obviously a very relevant question right now culturally. Thinking about Planned Parenthood videos and all that stuff. It's also, I'm aware, a very relevant issue personally. Right? There are a number of men in this room who have encouraged and paid for and supported abortions. There are a number of women in this room who have had abortions. This is deeply personal, and it is an important question. Uh, the Bible does make it clear that pregnant women are carrying human beings. Absolutely. doesn't get into the specific uh, you know, science of how exactly that works, but there's no question that in God's mind, a pregnant woman is carrying a human. Okay, let me give you some examples. There's many more that I'll give you, but here are some. Psalm 139. For you formed my inward parts... You knitted me together in my mother's womb. In the womb, this is a person that God is knitting together, it says. Here's a really interesting example from the Old Testament legal code, Exodus 21. It says, when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fine, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judge determined as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. This is a really interesting uh, place of, of, again, the Israel's law, where they're basically saying, okay, imagine the scenario, a woman's pregnant, and she gets struck by something in such a way that it forces her to deliver the baby. If the baby's okay, then there's a fine based on what the husband and the judge says. Because 
it, it was the woman that was injured, not the baby. Get it? So there's a fine. But if the woman is struck and she delivers and there's harm to the baby, then there is to be uh, retribution. Whatever. Retribution. <laughs> you got it. There's retribution based on how the baby was injured because the baby is a person. So it could be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, etc. But the life in a pregnant woman is a human being. In Matthew chapter 1, the angel tells Joseph and Mary, hey, you're pregnant. And there's a full assumption that this pregnancy that's been conceived in her, the virgin shall conceive, that that, that is leading to a son, that that's a, a baby in there. So absolutely, the Bible teaches that life begins at conception. How important is it? It's very important. We're made in God's image. And one of the Ten Commandments is we shouldn't murder. It's really important. It's not a salvation issue. Someone has a nuanced or slightly different thing about how exactly it works. You know, it doesn't mean they, they aren't a Christian, but this is really important. And it's really important for those of you who have experienced abortion firsthand that you hear that God's grace is sufficient to cover it. On the cross, Jesus took your sin, Jesus took your guilt, Jesus took your shame, Jesus took any fear that you would have that God is going to pay you back. He took that from you. And He desires to wash you and cleanse you and have you experience the new life that's in Him. So don't lose hope. That issue doesn't define your life or ruin your relationship. Serious, uh, serious question. All right. These transitions become hard after those kinds of questions. Uh, so, next one uh, relates to prayer. And this is a question that came in from a number of people, so I assume uh, this is a common question. Here's the next question. Who do I pray to when I pray? God, Father, Jesus, Holy Spirit. Who do I address when I pray? Right, you probably hear different people pray different ways. Um, here's what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that there are three persons in the one true and living God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are the same in substance, and they're equal in power and glory. So, one God, eternally existing in three persons. And this is the God you have a relationship with. The Father is the one who has planned your salvation. The Son is the one who has accomplished your salvation. The Spirit is the one who has awoken your heart to salvation. So much so that we could say that now you are a child of the Father, you are the bride of the Son, you are the home of the Holy Spirit. So who do you pray to? Whoever. Doesn't matter. You're in relationship with a triune God. Address the Father, address the Son, address the Spirit, but relate to God. Pursue God in relationship. Not trying to just get things from God, but trying to get God. Doesn't matter whether you address Him as Father, Son, or Holy Spirit. All right, next question. We didn't get to this one last hour, so you guys are lucky. <laughs> or unlucky, I don't know. All right, are our Mormon friends going to heaven? I understand they're off the biblical mark with their views on different levels of heaven, baptism of the dead, etc., but how important is it to evangelize them? Should we spend more time trying to convert our Mormon friends to Christianity or trying to convert our non-Christian friends to Christianity? There were a few different versions of this question, all related to different religions. So I, this, to me, kind of 
said it the best, so as I picked this one, but this sort of relates to what about all the other religions in the world, okay? So, related to that, uh, Jesus and the scriptures make absolutely clear that Jesus is the only way to God. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Acts 4, 12, there's no other name under heaven by which men can be saved. 1 Timothy 2, 5, there's one God, one mediator between God and man, Jesus. That's what Jesus says. If you go, well, that's narrow-minded, take it up to Jesus. <laughs> right? Because any view of the truth you have is potentially considered you know, narrow-minded. So that's what Jesus says. Now, what about religions that talk about Jesus and use the word Jesus, but seem to have a different dictionary? Right? Like if I said to you, hey, have you, have you seen Molly lately, my wife? And you said, oh, yeah, she's the, she's the really short, dark-haired girl. I go, no, she's tall and blonde. No, 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 she's short and dark hair. I go, okay, well, we're talking Molly, but we're not talking about the same person. Right? And that's often how it is as it relates to Mormons, as it relates to Jehovah's Witnesses and other faiths that talk about Jesus. But as you talk, you go, okay, same word, different dictionary. How do you think that through? Well, the, the, the book of Galatians was written to a group of people uh, who were dealing with that same exact kind of issue. People uh, who, who were embracing Jesus, but were adding some things in such a way that it seemed to actually uh, detract from who Jesus really was. So, let me show you a, a few places here in Galatians. This is significant. Galatians 1, the Apostle Paul, this is probably his boldest letter, uh, the, the, the strongest he is in terms of just forcefulness. He says this at the beginning of the letter. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. He's saying, you heard the gospel, but now you're running into something else. And there really isn't something else, but people still call it the gospel. Verse 8. This is very important as it relates to this specific question. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be accursed. That word accursed is anathema. It means eternally condemned. Paul is saying in the strongest language possible, there is one gospel. And it is to be held firmly. And if it's distorted or abandoned or changed, it's not the real gospel and the consequences are serious. You go, okay, well then what's the gospel? Because I better get this right. Okay, good question. He's going to tell you just a chapter later in Galatians 2. And uh, there's a lot of summaries that you could read of the gospel. We read one earlier in 1 Corinthians, but here's a summary he gives there. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law. Justified, by the way, means made right with God. You're not made right with God. You're not brought into right standing with God. You're not, that doesn't happen to you by works of the law. But through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Listen, what makes Christianity unique is that every other religion, and even some of the religions that use Jesus' name, are trying to get you to have works involved. And what Paul is saying, he's saying it's Jesus plus nothing. 
It's faith in him. A lot of other faiths want to go, it's Jesus plus works. You have to have both. You have to be baptized. You have to go to church. You have to do communion. You have to do this. You have to, you have to, have to. The gospel comes in and says, you don't have to. Jesus did. It's not about you. Do, 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 do. Here's what you got to do. It's about here's what Jesus has done. It's finished. That's the gospel. So the question as it relates to Mormonism or as it relates to any other faith is to go, does a person embrace the biblical Jesus who is part of the Godhead, one God, eternally existing as three persons, because who Jesus is matters a lot. And are they embracing that their salvation comes only through Jesus' finished work and nothing else? And if the answer to that is no, then you should share the gospel with them. Then they're not a Christian. Then they're not going to heaven. Then they're in danger. And everybody spends eternity somewhere. And so should you... Spend time trying to share the good news about how Jesus did this for you in a way that you can't do for yourself? Yes, with everybody. Share with anybody who doesn't treasure the true biblical Jesus and his gospel of grace. All right? <coughs> Tension? I told you. All right. On this next question, this is a good one to remember. Uh, this is the beginning of the conversation, not the end, okay? This question came in a bunch, and it came in a bunch of different ways. I'm going to spend a little bit more time on it, not because I want to talk about it a ton, but because a bunch of you ask, okay? Even what I'm going to say is not uh, enough for probably getting to the heart of your, your question, all right? Number whatever. <laughs> Can you explain the difference between predestination and free will? Why does it even matter? I can try. <laughs> um, again, you're asking this question, so that's why I'm answering it. Sometimes you're like, oh, that's all you want to talk about. No, I don't talk about it very much, actually. But I'll answer. The Bible does teach and use the word predestination. A lot of different places. Let me give you one example from Ephesians 1. The Apostle Paul is just absolutely celebrating the gospel. Here's what he says. So this is close to a gospel issue, which is part of the answer of why it matters. Uh, it's not the gospel, but it's, it's related. It's close. Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So Paul starts off saying, Christian... Rejoice! You have everything you need. How do you know, Paul? How, how do you know I should rejoice like this? He says, verse 4, Even as He chose us in Him, the timing here matters, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Rejoice, because God chose you before time began, Paul says. In love, He predestined us, there's the word, for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. You're not just... Uh, forgiven, you're adopted. You're a part of the family, Paul says. That's part of why you rejoice. You're predestined for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And Paul continues with lots more uh, praise. But he uses this word predestined. It's used a number of times in Scripture. Romans 8 is another prominent place. What does that word mean? Here's what the word means. Predestined means to decide upon beforehand to predetermine. So, in love, he decided beforehand, he predetermined us for adoption. You go beforehand, when's beforehand? Well, the Latin verse before said, before the foundation of the world. So, 
predestined, right? If you want to get rid of predestined, you've got to get scissors. It's in the Bible. So people then disagree about, well, what does it really mean? And so I want to, I want to talk you through the, the kind of two different ways that people view this word. And, and based on the question of predestination or free will, I'll, I'll use the categories free will and unconditional election. Okay? So the, the question relates to, okay, there's a choice that's been made before. Just so we're clear what we're talking about. A choice has been made for some to be saved. Why did that choice get made? That's what we're trying to answer. What was the decisive cause for that choice happening? Okay? The free will uh, position, I'm summarizing it. There's a lot more other differences and different things here, but here, here would be a summary. Is that God chose people for salvation based on his foreknowledge, where God looks into the future to see who would respond to the gospel message. Okay? So the idea here is God's looking down the corridors of time, and he sees, oh, there's people that are going to choose me someday. They're going to follow me. They're going to believe. They're going to exercise their free will. And so I choose them first. That's kind of how that works. Now, the unconditional election view is, is very different. It's that God chooses before the foundation of the world whom he will save. He does this unconditionally, not on the basis of foreseen faith. So unconditional is an important word. Here, in this view, God is doing this because God wants to do this. There's no conditions attached. It's not because, oh, that person's more godly, that person's going to choose me, that person's going to have more faith. It's just unconditional. There's some mystery to that. Okay, now your view of whether, of, of how that choice gets made depends entirely on your view of how sin has affected people. Has sin affected us partly or totally? That's kind of the question. And so the free will view of man's sin that allows uh, people to, to move in that direction is this. Though man is fallen, he can still freely choose God. His will is not restricted and enslaved by his sinful nature. So this is saying, great, get this. The term free will is saying you can do what you want. And you're unconstrained by anything. You have absolute freedom to make the choices you want to make. Which is why God can look down the quarters of time and see people choosing to trust Him. Because they have that ability. Now, on the other hand, the unconditional election view of sin and how it affects people is this. Because of the fall, that's the fall into sin, humans are incapable of any saving good apart from the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. We are helpless and dead in sin. Very different view, right? In that view, God looks down the corridor of time and he sees dead bodies. And some of them, he says, Lazarus, come forth, and they spring to life. So it's a very different perspective. Now, personally, I embrace the unconditional election view. And there are a number of reasons why. Um, one is just, just to give you an example, I think this is in a lot of places in the scripture. In Ephesians 1 that we just looked at, it said uh, that he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Why did he do it? He wanted to. Now, a big question gets into, well, what about free will? What about our choices? And doesn't that matter? And this is actually part of why I, I don't like the term free will. I think it's very unhelpful and very unbiblical, actually. I would rather use the term real choices. 
We make real choices that have real consequences, blessing and cursing, reward and loss. We experience that on the basis of our real choices. God really does hold us accountable based on what we choose to do. Right? He's, we're not robots, so we make real choices, but we don't have free will. Right? Free will is saying, I can do whatever I want, and I'm not influenced or constrained by anything. <laughs> yes, you are. Sin. The Bible says you're a slave to sin. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. You're a, child, you're a child of wrath like the rest of mankind. You're unable to accept spiritual things. So you're absolutely influenced by sin. Here's, here's a great example that I think just for me so vividly illustrates what has to happen for a person to become a Christian. And some of you have heard this. It's from my friend Tom. That's the, the vulture story, okay? So the vulture. Picture there's a really hungry vulture in the back of the room. And he's starving. And we want to give him the choice to have something to eat, okay? And up here we have a bowl filled with hamburger. And we have a bowl filled with a really delicious garden salad. He's chomping at the bit. He is so hungry. And we say, listen, vulture, before you do this, we want you to know that you can make a real choice. You can go to whichever one you want. The choice is yours. Go. Which one's he going to go to? Anyone think he's going to the garden salad? He's going to the hamburger. For sure. Okay, let's get rid of that. Let's get rid of that vulture. Let's get a new vulture in here. What's the new vulture going for? We had a hundred vultures. What are the, what are the hundred vultures going for? Hammer. Now listen, they have a real choice. They could go to the garden salad. On one hand, they could, but on the other hand, they can't because they got this little enslaved vulture heart that just wants meat. And someone's going to have to come in and change it and give it a new desire for salad in order for that to happen. And that's what the scripture says, is that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God made us alive, it says in Ephesians 2. By grace, we're saved. And so we have real choices, to be sure. But we're never going to make the choice to trust God until God first, by His Spirit, gives us that desire. That's the view that I take. Now, the question is, as well, why does it matter? Because I'll do it. I've studied these things. I get it. What's the, what's the difference? Well, um, there's a number of reasons why I think it matters. Again, I don't think it's the most important thing. I don't think it's like the main thing we should argue and fight about. And, right? But I think it does matter because it's close to the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel is grace. You're saved by grace. This relates to that. How much grace are you saved by? Are you saved by all grace or by mostly grace with a little bit of your ability? So I think it matters. And it matters because the core question is, what's the decisive cause? Who's the decisive cause? And if you say, well, the decisive cause was my choosing God because my will is free, then you're the decisive cause. If you say, God had to make me alive, then he's the decisive cause. And why I think it matters practically is because if, if you are the decisive cause, then you get just a little bigger. And when you get a little bigger... God gets a little smaller. On the other hand, when God gets bigger, you get smaller. And I think you have, I think this view gives you more resources from which 
to be gracious, to be thankful, to be joyful. Because you go, I contributed nothing to my salvation except my sin. I think that's why it matters. And here's what else I think. And you may not agree with this. That's okay. Begin the conversation. I think all of us, when we become Christians, instinctively know that it wasn't our choice. It was God's work. Here's how I think we know. Now, we get like, we study stuff and we get ourselves confused. But I think instinctively we know. Here's how I know. Because when you become a Christian, what do you do? You thank God for it. Why? Because you know he did it. And you start praying for other people to embrace God. Why? Because you know he's the one that makes people spiritually alive. Now, are there lots of other questions about our choices and about God's desire for everyone to be saved and about God so loved the world? Yes, there's lots of questions. Begins the conversation. But I think it does matter. All right, here's the last question. Here we go. Where is it? All right, there it is. Uh, this is the last one. I can't see, hear, smell, taste, or touch God. This is how I understand what is or isn't real. So for me, God is not real. Am I missing something? I love the honesty of that question, and I think it's a really important question because I think a lot of kids, uh, in particular kids, who you know are told about all these invisible characters, go, "How if God's invisible? I can't see it. How do I have a relationship with, with that?" Right? If you have more of a secular mindset, you know this is a this is a really important question. I mean, here's the first thing to know: there's a difference between something being imaginary and invisible. There are things you can't see because they don't exist. And there are things you can't see because they can't be seen. So for instance, your emotions, you can't see them, but you feel them. Your desires, your hopes, your dreams, your expectations, you can't see any of them, but you feel them. They're there, they're real. You wouldn't say because I can't see it, I can't touch it, I can't hear it, that it's not real. It's there. Those are absolutely real. Another thing to know is that this is a faith decision. The way I wrote it is, how can you prove that there isn't an invisible realm? How, do, how can you prove there's not? You can't. So you're making a faith decision to say, I'm going to trust by faith that there's only what exists is what I can see. So just realize you're also making a faith commitment. Now, the reason why I think... That, that this idea of imaginary invisible is so crucial is because we have these longings in us, these desires in us that we just know. And the longer you live and the older you get, the more you know they can't be filled by this life. You hope in career, and it lets you down. You hope in health and vitality, and you get old. You hope in romance and relationships, and that fails. So... What does it mean that we have this hope, this longing that never gets fulfilled? Well, C.S. Lewis is a British philosopher. He said this, If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. Could it be that the reason you have these invisible longings is because there is a place and there is a person that you can't currently see that is the only one who can satisfy those things? Right? The fact that you thirst means liquid exists. 
The fact that you get tired means sleep exists. The fact that you have this hope, this longing for satisfaction and fulfillment means it exists, even if you can't see it. It's really interesting that as our age and as our day is increasingly secular and increasingly built on what can we touch and what can we feel, what can we hear, what can we sense, it's interesting that while that grows, at the same time, the, the industry related to fantasy and adventure and science fiction, right? Those novels and movies are selling billions of dollars a year. Why? Why is it that we're both more into just what we can see, taste, and touch, and we're also into this other stuff? J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote Lord of the Rings, he has an essay where he, it's called On Fairy Tales. And he says that all of these stories have five things in common. Here are the five things they have in common. All these fantasy-type stories. They all have escape from time, deliverance from death, love that does not end, communication with non-human beings, and the triumph of good over evil. Why do you love Star Wars? Why do you love Lord of the Rings? Why do you love the Avengers? Why do you love all these things you love? Because they have escape from time, deliverance from death, love that doesn't end, communication with non-human beings, and triumph over good and evil. Could it be that the reason that we have all those longings is because that's the true story of the world? And that even though we can't see it, and that even though we can't touch it, even though we can't smell it or taste it, it's there. Consider it. All right, here's the last thing I'll say about that. This is also why Jesus came to be seen and heard. Only in Christianity does God take on a body that you can see, you can hear, you can touch. And that's where we'll pick up next week as we look at the gospel. All right? Let me pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Uh, thank you for lots of great questions. Uh, thank you for uh, time to be able to think through some important things. God, give us also grace and understanding with each other. And as we process the things we've heard, would you be involved in it, we ask in Jesus' name.